Welcome back to The Bid and to our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Lehner. The coronavirus crisis has accelerated sustainability. It's brought to light issues around the environment and our climate, as well as social issues, like how companies engage their employees, their communities, and their customers. And so investors are turning to sustainable investing more and more to build resilient portfolios. Now, as economies around the world begin to aim for recovery, or at least adjust to a new normal, can sustainability accelerate that recovery? Recently, at BlackRock's first annual global summit, I had a conversation with leaders in this field about how sustainability can help us build back better. Today, we're sharing that conversation. We'll hear from Mindy Lubber, CEO and President of Series, Fiona Reynolds, CEO of the Principles for Responsible Investment, Marissa Drew, CEO of Impact Advisory and Finance for Credit Suisse, and Peter Baker, President and CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Let's get to it. So to start, the overall theme is, can sustainability accelerate recovery? Fiona, much of your role at PRI is helping to advocate for policies with both public sector and private sector leaders. What are you doing to capture the opportunities of this crisis? Anyone who has been in doubt about sustainability issues, I now think understands the interconnectedness of issues. So I keep saying that people really can now see through COVID-19 But if you don't have healthy people and you don't have a healthy planet, you can't possibly have a healthy economy. Three things go together. And at the beginning of this pandemic, I had so many people, particularly in the media and other people, who said to me, well, surely sustainability is going to fall off the agenda. That hasn't been the case. I think sustainability is being very much at the fore. But what we need to do making sure going forward and just mentioning about Build Back Better is that, you know, with stimulus packages that are going to total somewhere between $10 and $20 trillion, really we have to think about that what we do today and tomorrow over the next couple of years is really going to shape the future of our economy but also of society for the next decade. And the private sector business and investors really need to play a significant part of that solutions because governments alone are not going to be able to fund the transformation that we need. And I think that we've got such a great opportunity from the sustainability community to make sure that we're part of ensuring that the new normal is the world that we want to be in, that we have an economy fit for the 21st century and that's one that really has environmental and social aims at the heart and that we can create the jobs for the future and the skills that we also need for the future. So as they say, never waste a good crisis. And I think from our perspective, from the investment community, that's what we're very much trying to do. How do we push sustainability forward? And Peter, on that note, you wrote an article recently saying that CEO leadership would be absolutely critical in pushing sustainability forward and trying to not waste this crisis and create some systemic change. So what specific actions do you think in 2020 you would hope to see from leaders who care about really using this to accelerate sustainability? Well, I think for every CEO and every leader in business, the perspective of risk will be completely changed. Most supply chains in the world found themselves ill-prepared for the shock that COVID brought. We all realize that climate change has the potential to bring even bigger shocks to our systems. So how do we get prepared? So the first step that companies need to do is integrate sustainability truly into their governance, into their risk assessment, into their decision-making, eventually in their disclosures to capital markets. 
their investors or financiers. The second thing we really need to do is we need to, as this system transformation gets underway, understand that if you implement sustainability well, you're really building the competitive position of your company. And then thirdly, as you disclose transparently the process that your company is making, really find new ways to engage the investors in the capital markets. Now, we need to move to a system where the cost of capital of a company is determined by its sustainability performance as well as its financial performance. Mindy, the work that Peter is talking about is certainly your work every day as well. I'm curious how optimistic you are that we'll see real change in the next 12 months and what exactly you'd be asking CEOs to do differently as they think about incorporating ESG issues into their decision-making and strategies. Well, let me just pull the lens back a tiny bit in response to a few of my colleagues and then go right into that question. Right now, I think Fiona mentioned it, there will be about $12 trillion moving into our economy to remedy and to help build us out of the COVID economic crisis. That's a global number. And that's stimulus packages and infrastructure packages, certainly two to four trillion in the United States. Not all of that is in the marketplace yet, but some of it is and it's moving out quickly. That money could be spent in one of two ways. It could move us back to a business as usual, highly fossil fuel driven economy, or it could be around a clean energy, clean transportation, start evolving us as it relates to the chemicals we use and the cement we use and the steel we use and the way we build bridges and schools and the infrastructure of electric vehicles. So to come back to what we ask of the companies we work with, we do expect integration of sustainability or ESG from the boardroom to the supply chain. We might train corporate boards help them set goals so we get to a Paris-aligned future, that we know where we need to get. And we can't start in 2045. We need to start today. So set audacious goals for the next 20, 30 years starting today. Apply those goals and standards to their supply chain. If they have climate and human rights and other standards in the states, make sure we're applying that equity and fairness around the world. And to start changing what they do what they buy, what kind of products, and it will help them with their employees, with their consumers, with their profitability. And we work with hundreds of investors. That's what they want to see from their companies, integration of climate risk and opportunity, of sustainability risk and opportunity into everything they do. And this is not about trading off values for value. This is about making money, creating a long-term sustainable future, doing so in a way that's good for the company, but also good for the planet. And the final point is those very same companies that Peter and I are referencing or Fiona as it relates to investors need to join us and stand up and support policy and support those stimulus packages to move us to a sustainable future. Marissa, I would love a reality check from you. When we say that it's not about trading off value for values, look, I talk with all kinds of investors all over the world and off the record settings every day, as you do too. Is that a debate that you think is really settled or how much of your time is still trying to make that case, trying to illustrate that the data is there such that sustainable investing does not have to mean a trade off in return? I think it depends on who my audience is. So I think the institutional community for sure now is seeing just through the crisis alone, we see the performance 
When I speak to people as individuals, though, I think there's an education to be had. I do often have a conversation about whether this is trading off return if people are aligning values with their investing habits. So the more cases that we can demonstrate that we do generate good returns, the better off we are able to drive that further bucket, if you will, of the private investment, which then, of course, is giving asset managers capital and then demanding of them certain things. So there's sort of a holistic value chain effect. When we also think about the smartest investors who have had tremendous success over decades, increasingly one by one, they're joining our party too and waving the flag and saying this is an enormous investment opportunity. Jeff Ubin and Value Act, who is relinquishing part of his old fund, jumped in. And he said, you know, when you address something like climate change, which is the single most important thing that we need to be investing in for global prosperity, I'm paraphrasing his words. But he says, you know, when you're addressing climate change with a business solution, in his words, he says, that's a 10 times your money deal. And that kind of mantra, I think, is what we need to continue to reinforce in whatever way we can. But good data and good case studies, I think, is key to that. So to help quantify it's a 10 times your money deal, we still have some gaps, right? There's growing data about the potential risks of not having more sustainable strategies and investments, but still kind of quantifying even specifically climate risk is a little bit challenging and still an evolving space. Fiona, what do you see as near-term needs to help make climate risk in particular sort of more tangible and actionable? In many parts of the world, and certainly in a lot of our signatory base, rather than just thinking about ESG from the fact of how do ESG issues come in and affect my portfolio from a risk return point of view, more of our signatories are starting to think about how do ESG factors in my portfolio affect the real world. And we have to have that discussion as well. But as the reality of climate change become increasingly apparent, it's not if governments will act, it's when. And the longer we leave it, the more that we are going to see that more drastic and urgent policy issues are going to need to be brought in. So we're seeing across the world that there's many countries, including the EU, that's now got a Green New Deal and it's leading the way. The UK's got a net zero target, as have countries such as Canada, Norway, Denmark, and, you know, the list goes on. But also achieving net zero doesn't just magically happen. The only way governments can actually achieve them is by changing the policy settings. I think that the message that we certainly try to give to investors is you need to act now or you're going to pay the price later because this is happening and it's a reality. In that spirit of acting now, I'm curious, who are we looking to as leaders? Who are we looking to to really step out, whether you think of a specific government or a specific company? We had the Bank of England, for example, like took the lead in identifying what climate stress tests might look like, but that's been put on hold to some extent, understandably, given the challenges of the current crisis. So for the next six months, what names should we be looking out for? Well, first of all, we need to look at all categories. Let us start with companies and I could give you a hundred examples, but Jeff Bezos stepping up with a 2040 net zero pledge. So that's 10 years sooner than most. It's obviously a company of inordinate power and magnitude. Some of our largest asset owners, people who manage $300 billion, whether it's the California Public Pensions Fund or the California Teachers Fund or the New York State Fund, We are working with them to come out with a plan for Paris-aligned portfolios. A few others. We have to have policy. 
there are tens of thousands of companies below the Russell 1000 who aren't doing anything. We need policy so there's a level playing field. And our Federal Reserve Bank needs to follow the lead of the Bank of England. We are working with them every day and with leaders in every one of the federal offices to make climate a systemic risk, meaning the risk is to all of our economy and they need to be part of the discussion and regulation, not just Congress or not just the Securities and Exchange Commission. And finally, I would ask the SEC to mandate the disclosure of climate risk because you can't act until you understand the risk. If we can move on all of those fronts, we would make a good deal of progress. Indeed. Peter, I see you nodding. Would you add a few to that list? I would give a generic answer and then name a few names. I think generically what you need to do is make a list of which are the companies that have signed up to science-based targets, because that's where the climate change journey starts for a company. Set yourself a target to get to one and a half degree or net zero carbon by no later than 2050 and have a realistic plan to halve the emissions in the next decade. Any company who does that will probably qualify. The second element, which are the companies that have signed up to TCFD to bring this stuff in their governance and be transparent towards capital markets? If you look at it, like Mindy says, you probably want to go sector by sector. I thought some of the companies that stood out in the last few months were probably a BP that as the first major oil and gas company came out with a net zero target, swiftly followed by Shell. In the food and fast-moving consumer space, Danone is really pushing hard for a regenerative agriculture. Unilever boldened their ambitions with a holistic plan that captured not only climate change, but also biodiversity loss and some of the social aspects. So there's the big brand names out there. But I think the generic, is there a framework science-based targets that companies adhere to, and then start through their disclosures measuring whether they actually do and not just talk. Absolutely. Moving on to another dimension of sustainability. So the social responsibilities and opportunities or risks in the investment landscape. There's been a lot of talk that in the wake of COVID-19, there's more focus on S. And that, I think, is a false construct because we need to be thinking about all of these simultaneously. That's the point of sustainability. But to the extent that this is an opportunity to refine our understanding of what data we need to be collecting, what companies need to be doing to think about social risks, that this is a welcome opportunity to do that, whether it's a about resilience in the wake of great challenges and exogenous shocks like COVID or a pandemic, or whether it's about what drives employee loyalty, retention, and even how we think about elements of social equality and how they refract inside a corporation or an investment opportunity. So Fiona, I'm curious, from PRI's perspective, what are you doing in the wake of that kind of conversation right now when there's a discussion that there's, quote, more focus on us? What are you guys doing about that to take advantage of that opportunity? I completely agree with you that you need to look holistically at the issues, but for some reason, people don't. And I think that COVID-19 has really just exacerbated the systemic social issues across the globe, you know, from inequality and inclusion, decent work, social protections. I think it's really unveiled a lot of the shortfalls in our economic system. The ITUC have estimated that up to 300 million jobs can be lost, and this is going to cause some people to slip back in poverty. There's sort of two types of people in this crisis. So there's the people who are getting paid and we're working at home and, you know, we can homeschool our kids. And, yeah, sure, we've got a bit of inconvenience in our life, but if we're healthy, that's all we have. 
But we also see lots of other people who are in jobs where they're on the front line or they have no sick pay, they have no social protections, they are feeling even if they're sick, which isn't helping anyone, that they have to go to work. So we need to really not just be looking at the climate issues, we need to be looking at the social protection issues. A lot of the disruption that's happening at the moment and a lot of the social divisions that are happening, a lot of it stems from inequality. We're talking about the fact that we need to build back better. We're talking about, you know, that there's between 10, 20 trillion that's going to be spent on the recovery. That recovery needs to focus on creating jobs, but they need to be jobs that are focused on the skills that we need for the future, but we also need to make sure that they are good jobs and that we have good social protections in place. If we look at some of the reasons that countries in the world that don't want to make this transition to a low-carbon economy, it's because they've got lots of people in jobs in the fossil fuel sector. And that can't hold us back, but we can't leave those people on the scrap heap either. We need to make sure that there is a just transition to a net zero world and that we factor in workforces and we factor in communities or we're not going to get anywhere. So what do you make of this increased focus on social factors, sustainability? I think there was a recognition through the crisis that the E and the S are inextricably interlinked. If you don't have a healthy planet, we are going to have more sickness. We are going to have more pandemics and so on. The companies, I think, that have demonstrated they've taken all of the ESG into consideration, to me, are the ones that have outperformed through the crisis. Why? Because they've been more aware of the total factors. They've demonstrated more resiliency. They probably, by the virtue of better governance, had better scenario planning. And then I would point to the companies that handled, even when they were going through, say, a furlough process, the companies who handled that well versus those who didn't, just think of the headline risk of the ones who didn't. So as we come out of the crisis, then those are the companies that are going to create, I think, customer affinity over the longer term. They're going to be the companies who will be the employees of choice. So the business case, I think, is becoming very clear. So just as you said, the E and the S are linked, so are the E and the S linked to the context in which a company operates, right? So whether that's the social lens through which you look at a company's operations is affected by the social construct and the social contract of the companies in which their operations are most concentrated, or the environmental effects of where their operations are. How do each of you think about how we adjust these themes we've been talking about, frankly, at a global level for local realities? So I would just say, of course, there's regional differences and, of course, economies are different. But I think the baseline of what people should expect has to be the same around the world. People should expect to be able to get a living wage. Now, that wage will be different in different countries. They should be able to go to work and have safety and be protected and not be put in situations where they're working in a way that there's huge numbers of accidents or deaths. That should be the same for everybody. The only thing I would say is that we do have to be sensitive to the developing world who face many different challenges. So if I can just pick one sector, say, that pulls at people's heartstrings, something like animal conservation. We're facing a moment now, say, in Africa, where We have come a very long way to retrain poachers not to go after animals because you have tourism and that's created sustainable livelihood for those people who would otherwise 
seek a different outcome. Now, during the shutdown and COVID, those people cannot feed their families. The tourism has dried up and we're seeing an increase in poaching. So when we talk about Build Back Better, sometimes we put our Western lens on things and, you know, you don't have those social systems or plan Bs, if you will. So I 100% agree that everybody needs that basic human right to a good livelihood and good opportunity. But if you're making a choice between killing an animal and putting food on your table or being a conservationist, those are really tough choices. So I think over time, what's incumbent upon us as we do think about building back better is to try to demonstrate to them that if we can help in whatever way to maintain and preserve the ecosystems that will be sustainable in the long term and show the benefit of making those investments for the long term and how they will then come back and create a return for those communities, that's got to be a part of the equation. But it's a sensitive topic in some of those areas today. I would probably put a bit of a health warning on it all. I mean, I am in complete agreement that the S will gain a lot of momentum as a result of COVID. And everybody is now talking about it. But the reality is the data quality, uh, the tools to measure and to manage the science-based targets are simply not there in many of the areas, not the way that they have been developed on the environmental issues. So I think we need to translate this conversation quite quickly in what are the material issues that on the social side we wish to focus on. Now, obviously, human rights in supply chains is one. I would argue living wages throughout supply chains could be another one. And so let's quickly organize a global conversation about what are the 10 big indicators that we all want to start measuring What are the tools we do not yet have or the standards we need to make those measurements happen on a comparable basis and then step by step drive this in? Because otherwise we're going to continue to talk about feel good stuff, but fundamentally don't make the change that we need. Just on the developing countries, I think that one of the things that we also need to be very cognizant of during COVID-19 and in the recovery and coming back to jobs being available in those communities. Is, um, last year I chaired a financial services commission on modern slavery and human trafficking through the UN. And, you know, there's 40 million people in some form of modern slavery and human trafficking today. It's one in 185 people. It's a $150 billion annual business for traffickers. It's important to the finance sector because you have to launder your money somehow and you do it through the finance sector in cases. For investors, a lot of issues in supply chains. So this is more people than in slavery than in any time in the history of the world. But one of the sad things about COVID-19 is that traffickers pick on the vulnerable and we're going to see far more vulnerable people and I think that we see an increase rather than a decrease in this issue. And it's the other reason why we in the developed world have to be very conscious about supply chains, making sure that suppliers are paid so workers down the chain get paid within this issue. And we are thinking about this from all economies, not just from the developed economy side of things, because I really do think on that side, we're going to see more of a human tragedy happening if we're not careful. Mindy? I want to be sure that we don't overly separate ENS issues. They are so interconnected as to sometimes be inseparable from my perspective. And if we just take climate change and how it exacerbates problems, particularly in the developing world, but everywhere else, climate change will cause less water availability. We already know that. 
we will have about 30% less water than we need as a world community in 2026 or 2027. That comes out of the World Economic Forum, not an environmental piece. And no company could survive without enough water to run manufacturing. It will decrease their share value. But the humanity of it right now, women who are already in developing world, spending hours trying to get enough water for their families, that will double, that will triple. The issues of climate, of people have traditionally thought it's an e-issue, the environment, it impacts those who have been most affected by other tragedies of the economy more so than any other issue. And we've got to be mindful as we take on climate. It's not about the planet. It is about the people on the planet and whether my kids and your kids will have a future. I want to ask each of you, we touched on a number of different things, whether it's the importance of regulation and policy and standards or lack of excuses in that category. We talked about the integration and links between these different issues. What's one question that each of you thinks is really critical to ask to raise the credibility of what it means to do sustainable investing and to create progress in this area that we may not have touched on yet? So if I was talking to a company and wanting to drive sustainability forward and, you know, I'm coming from the investment point of view, I would really want to understand how do they manage sustainability and manage profits? How are they managing profit, people and planet? Tell me about it all in an integrated way. You know, how does their work contribute both positively and negatively to sustainable outcomes in the real world? I think it would tell me what was a really good long-term company that I want to invest in. Mindy? So I would ask major financial enterprises, including BlackRock, if in fact the data is clear that we're seeing no compromise in investments, if you factor in social and environmental issues, how do we move a company who's literally a trendsetter in everything? You are trendsetters and appropriately so from a fifth or whatever number of sustainable investing products to 50% to 70%. And how does that happen much more quickly than it might otherwise? You all have extraordinary power. I'm not putting you on the spot now. But those are the kind of questions I'm asking colleagues at all the large financial institutions. I think it's an important and fair question. We've certainly set a target of a trillion dollars in 10 years, but seeing just the flows in the first quarter of this year, we have more data basically to base those goals and those targets on rather than just aspirations and hope. And I think we welcome observations and input from each of you and your organizations as you see how we and others can be doing that. Peter? I would say COVID has proven to all of us that we can radically change if the circumstances are there. So I would expect every business leader to come up with a very clear picture on what is the end state? What does build back better mean for your sector, for your company? And then as an investor, I would really focus my questions. And how are you going to manage the transition? Because I think the winners and the losers are not going to be determined by figuring out that we need to electrify transport. The winners and losers will be determined who gets there first in a responsible way. And that's really where the focus now needs to shift. I would ask for our companies to be more consistent and provide more disclosure. And really, as they start to think about their transition plans, and as they start to think about integrating ESG into their operations, to really try to identify and isolate those material factors that are helping to drive their business. Because what investors are calling for is the ability 
to have that information so they can make informed decisions. So to me, it's a lot about the data and the disclosure. And then we add on technology, machine learning, AI. I really think we're on the cusp of being able to provide enough information so you can really pick and choose those winners. Well, thank you to each of you for sharing your perspectives, for raising those questions. And I at least am hopeful that if we were to reconvene in six months, much less a year from now, hopefully we'll have slightly new things to talk about as opposed to saying the same things. It feels like we are at a turning point in terms of progress and that much broader recognition of the importance of sustainable investing. So thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.